Would you pray with me, please? O oh Lord, our God, you are worthy of all our praise. You are the God who never fails to keep your promises. We thank you that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we see your love, justice, mercy, provision, and victory. Because you are a God who lifts up those who are weighed down and those who grieve, we pray for your peace and comfort. We lift up to you our brothers and sisters in Jesus who are living in places of extreme persecution. Because you are our God who provides for your children, we ask that you give comfort and courage to the watched and the whispered about, the spied upon and the shadowed, those who have to hide their beliefs, disguise their actions, and watch their steps. Cause them to know that they are not alone. We also pray for our efforts here at PBC Cupertino to present the good news to our community. Specifically, we pray for the Discovery Dinners in October, that a clear message of the truth and light of the Messiah Jesus will be a beacon of hope to those who will attend. May they have ears to hear that you are a God who saves us from our self-salvation as well as our self-destruction. We humbly thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy. And our desire is to praise you as long as we live. Hear our praises as we have gathered together today. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's turn our attention now to the scripture reading of Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, Speaking, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Well, good morning all. Good to see you. So it's the Labor Day weekend and uh, the traditional end of summer, except the end of summer seems to be moving earlier and earlier into August. Many students have been back at school for uh, some weeks and um, students have done various things over the summer. Some students took extra classes and so they stayed in learning mode. Other students uh, have gotten a little out of practice with paying attention in class and had to get used to that again. 
Uh, we spend a significant amount of our lives in school, and I'm sure that for uh, many young folk it seems to last forever. It does seem never-ending. Uh, preschool, pre-K, kindergarten, elementary school, middle, high school, college, and grad school. That's at least 20 years. And uh, parents and teachers have high expectations that their charges will progress all the way from uh, their ABCs uh, to advanced topics. And therefore, parents feel under pressure to pick the right preschool so that their kids end up in the right grad school. Um, I, I wish that were just a joke, but <laughs> that's uh, becoming the reality. Uh, well, it was very different from my parents. Uh, my father walked two miles to the next village to a one-room schoolhouse uh, and then left at the age of 14. That was as far as the school went, and he went off to work. And my mother left school the week she turned 15 and went to work. So. Uh, I was the first in my extended family to get a college degree, uh, sort of a new thing for the family. Well, the Christian life is also a school in which we are expected to advance from infancy to maturity, from milk to solid food. And yet, this is a surprise to some Christians who think that after you have said the prayer and made a decision for Christ, that is it. That's the important thing. And they don't see their Christian life as being lifelong growth and development. But we should grow and develop in our maturity throughout our Christian life, and this is certainly the expectation of the author of the book of Hebrews. Now, in our study in Hebrews, we have moved into the central section of the letter uh, from the end of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 10, which is all about Jesus as our great high priest. And last week, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, uh, that passage contrasted the old order of high priesthood that was established under Aaron and the new order of high priesthood uh, filled by Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. And uh, the preacher has a lot more to say about this, but before he does that, he takes a break to issue some exhortations and some warnings uh, from chapter 5.11 through 6.12. And we've seen that this is characteristic feature of the book of Hebrews. Exposition about Jesus interleaved with exhortations and warnings to his readers. And the preacher will return in chapter 7 to a detailed exposition of Jesus as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But meanwhile, this break, and it's a lengthy break, and it comes in four sections, and uh, we'll look at just the first portion today, and then you'll have to wait until February to go on to the other portions. And especially that means you'll have to wait till February for chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, which is the most controversial passage in the whole book. Um, I need a few months to figure out quite what I'm going to say about that. <laughs> it's the most asked section uh, that I get asked the most questions about. Well, uh, this passage for today, 5.11 through 6.3, comes in two sections, uh, the end of chapter 5 and then the beginning of chapter 6. And uh, for the first paragraph, 5, 11 through 14, I'm uh, going to read uh, Eugene Peterson's wonderful rendering in the message because I like this so much. So uh, here's uh, Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. 
I have a lot more to say about this, but it is hard to get it across to you since you've picked up this bad habit of not listening. <laughs> By this time, you ought to be teachers yourselves, yet here I find you need someone to sit down with you and go over the basics on God again, starting from square one. Baby's milk, when you should have been on solid food long ago. Milk is for beginners, inexperienced in God's ways. Solid food is for the mature, who have some practice in telling right from wrong. So now as we work our way through this paragraph, uh, I'll follow the NIV, which is what you have printed in your uh, little worship sheet. So verse 11, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. We have much to say about this. The preacher wants to expound the high priesthood of Jesus and how it is that Jesus can be high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And he wants to go into that in considerable detail. He has much to say, but there are two impediments that he faces. The first is the topic itself, and then the second is his hearers. So firstly, the topic is difficult to explain. Now, if any of you have tried to study this letter in depth, this may amaze you or amuse you, because the letter so far has been hard to understand and explain. So is he really saying that the hardest is yet to come? And then the second and uh, the greater impediment is the preacher's audience. They no longer try to understand, the NIV has it. Literally, they've become sluggish or lazy in hearing, or as Eugene Peterson put it so colorfully, you've picked up this bad habit of not listening. Now, uh, I'm sure some teachers are thinking this of their students who have come back after the long summer break, uh, that they've gotten out of the habit of listening. Again and again, we've seen that hearing is a major theme in this letter of Hebrews. Uh, and specifically, hearing means paying attention to what God has said, to the living word of the living God. God spoke in the past through the prophets, and that word still speaks as the scriptures, which for... Uh, the hearers of this would be uh, Israel's scriptures, our Old Testament. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But we've seen that the wilderness generation that came out of Egypt did not listen, and they did harden their hearts. And so they failed to enter into God's rest. They did not enter the promised land. And their example hangs over this letter. Uh, as I think you're getting a sense of, because I keep repeating this phrase, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. God has now spoken more fully in his son, to whom we all should pay attention. And the preacher does not want his current hearers to be like that wilderness generation, those who died and they failed to complete their journey. And the preacher is determined to keep his brothers and sisters moving towards their destination, moving towards that goal of entering into God's presence where Jesus already is. And so he tries to shake them out of their stupor by shaming them. Verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. So he shames them by comparing them to babies. None of us likes that. They've been Christians for a considerable time. They should by now have mastered the basic material about Christ and already be teaching others. But they have regressed. They've gone back to the milk stage. They're just babes. 
Instead of teaching others, they themselves need a teacher. Then they need to go back to the beginning and go over the ABCs all over again. They need to go back to preschool. The metaphor here of milk and solid food is a familiar one. It's used elsewhere in scripture to contrast immature and mature Christians. And in verses 13 and 14, the preacher contrasts the two diets, the milk and the solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So these two verses present four contrasts, four pairs of terms. First contrast is the life stage, infant versus mature. The second contrast is the diet, milk versus solid food. The third contrast is the learning method, and the fourth contrast is the skill or the capability that is acquired. Now, we expect milk-drinking infants to have limited capability, but we don't expect them to stay in that state forever. We rejoice in their expanding capabilities. We delight in their first step. We capture it in video, even if it's immediately followed by an abrupt sitting down. But we expect that they will develop to taking two steps and then three steps. But we would be very concerned if, having learned to walk, they went back to a single step and then sat down. And teachers may be faced with students who have regressed over the summer. And the preacher is concerned that his hearers have regressed in their capabilities. So what are the capabilities that he is looking for in his hearers? Well, his observations about the milk-drinking infants and the solid food-eating mature adults should be taken in parallel, the one being the negative counterpart of the other. So, the milk-drinking infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Now, we don't expect an infant to be acquainted with astrophysics. We don't expect a new believer to be acquainted with sophisticated theology. We don't expect young children to have a finely-tuned sense of right and wrong of appropriate and inappropriate behavior, they have to learn. They have to learn that it's not all right to hit Annie, that it's not all right to take Johnny's toy. They have to learn that it is good to share. Uh, Robert Fulgham's book, All I Really Needed to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten, which came out almost 40 years ago, became, and this became a surprise bestseller. And among the lessons learned, share everything, play fair. Don't hit people. Don't take things that aren't yours. And there's a number more. So as young children grow up, we expect them to attempt these simple rules. Don't take things that aren't yours. Uh, initially, they may fail more often than they succeed. But with practice, they will learn how to share their toys and not take the toys of others without asking. They will thus become acquainted with the rules of good behavior, not just mentally, but more importantly, experientially. They will not just know the rule, they will actually do it. And parents hope that they will come to do it automatically, instinctively, that without thinking, they will do it because it becomes ingrained in them. It becomes part of their being. Now the milk drinking Christian can initially be excused for not being acquainted with certain teaching, but we expect them to progress and become acquainted by doing. 
So the preacher here expects experiential acquaintance with a teaching about righteousness. So what is this? It's not abstract systematic theology. It's not righteousness as the word is used in Romans, for example. It's not Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Its meaning is clarified by the companion verse, verse 14. And there we read that the mature have moved on to solid food. They, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So the message about righteousness is the discernment of good and evil, or more generally, discerning and differentiating the good thing from the bad thing. And this can apply at a basic level. It is a good thing to share your toys. It is a bad thing to hit your brother. It can apply at an advanced level in all the moral choices we face as Christians. So how do we develop the skill of moral discernment? Well, it takes practice. Now, whether or not uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule is true, it takes practice to learn anything, often prolonged practice. Repetitive practice builds up muscle memory, whether for sport or for playing an instrument or for some other skill. We train our bodies until they instinctively behave a certain way. Now, a few years ago, I watched Sean and Ryan Hinn throw a baseball back and forth to each other, and I marveled at their skill, at how effortlessly, accurately, and far they threw the ball to each other. I knew I would never be able to do that. Uh, there was a lot of muscle memory there that remained from their days playing college ball. It's true for anything that we, uh, it takes a lot of practice to learn a skill, and I'm sure for some of us are familiar with that. We've spent hours practicing a skill, training ourselves by constant use until it becomes habitual. And similarly, developing moral character takes practice. We develop moral muscle memory by repeatedly doing the right thing. But if we repeatedly do the wrong thing, we become inured, we become insensitive to right and wrong. Now, the milk-drinking infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. He's not even started such learning. And though the preacher is speaking in generalities here, it is clear from his rhetoric that he expects his hearers to have moved beyond this stage. They've been Christians long enough that they should have advanced. And his teaching about righteousness is equated with discernment of good and evil, of right and wrong. It's about making the right moral choices. It is about living righteously the way that God intends us to live. The way he intends us to live, first of all, as human beings created in his image, and the way he intends us to live more particularly as followers of Jesus. And the mature are those who by constant use have trained themselves. More literally, this is by constant use, have faculties trained. So faculty has a wide range of meanings, and the meaning here is of our senses. So we have the faculty of hearing, we have the faculty of seeing, we have the faculty of tasting, and it then means our capacity to discern what we take in. So we taste whether something is sweet or sour or salty. We discern the sounds we hear as a recognizable language. Uh, sadly, COVID has impacted some people's faculties, loss of taste, the loss of hearing, 
uh, including some in our own body. And this capacity for discernment extends to the ability to make moral decisions, to discern whether something is good, beautiful, and true, or whether it is bad, evil, and wrong. Indeed, from the Greek word for faculty here, we get our, Greek, our English word aesthetic, meaning the sense of what is beautiful, what is good. So our faculties need training. We are born with them untrained. Now, it's a wonder to watch young children develop the faculty of language. Um, they start with nothing, and then they start by imitating what they hear. Uh, Sue and I know children who are being raised bilingual and trilingual, and we've watched them grow up as they learn to differentiate the various languages. And at first, they get the languages all mixed up in a single sentence. But over time, we've watched them with practice learn to sort those languages out to differentiate them until they speak coherent sentences in, in, in one language or the other uh, and can work that out. The human brain is amazing in that capacity. Its neuroplasticity makes it responsive to training. Now, moral faculties need training. The mature person has faculties that are trained. The word translated trained here is the word from which we get gymnasium. Now, I'm sure some of our youth are doing serious training workouts in the gym. Others of us are just trying to hang on to a modest level of fitness. Uh, I log my bike rides on Strava and track my times as I age. Uh, they go downwards, down. Uh, life is a gymnasium in which our faculties get a workout. And this training is gained through constant use. And the goal of such training and practice is so we can discern and make the right moral choices. And through this, we become mature. So our faculty of moral decision-making develops through training and constant use. So how do we get this training? Well, we get it by being tested by the circumstances of life. And this includes by temptations. And we've already seen in Hebrews that testing and tempting are the opposite sides of the same coin. And the milk-drinking infant's lack of acquaintance with moral decision-making is due to a lack of testing. Even Jesus was tested, and he learned obedience through what he suffered in that testing and temptation. So our moral character requires testing in order to develop. Adam and Eve lived in blissful ignorance in the garden. They knew what was good and true and beautiful. They didn't know anything else. So one could say they had a perfect aesthetic. And the liberating innocence that Eve had is beautifully imagined by C.S. Lewis in Paralandra, the second book of his sci-fi trilogy, which some of you might have read. They knew what was good, but the fruit of one tree was off-limits. We read that Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. And in this, she was correct, because this was true of all the trees that God had planted in his garden. But God had spoken, and his word said that they should not eat of this one tree. They, needed, they did not need to eat of it. They did not need the knowledge of good and evil. They had God's word simply to keep. And they had an abundance of trees. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 
But sadly, Eve listened to a different voice, and she chose to do what was not good. And so the Bible traces humanity's confusion over good and evil, right and wrong, noble and base, to this primeval act of disobedience, of failure to hear God's word. And ever since, humanity has been in need of developing the ability to distinguish good and evil. God gave Israel his law, which was a great gift. It told them what was good and evil, what was right and wrong. It was something that the other nations did not have. Then, under the new covenant, God has put his spirit in us to sanctify us. Now, in one sense, we are already sanctified. We've been set aside as holy when we come to Christ and when we are placed in him. But there is also an ongoing, lifelong process of sanctification as God's Spirit transforms our character to make us more and more like Jesus. And this includes restoring the ability to differentiate right from wrong, good from evil, and the resolve to choose and do the right. And as we grow into maturity, we develop faculties that are trained by constant use to distinguish good from bad. And we develop the ability to persevere in what is good, hearing the living word of the living God, to persevere in faithfulness. So that's the first paragraph, 5, 1 through 11 through 14. In the second paragraph, the preacher pivots from a description of those who are mature to exhort his hearers to themselves move on to such maturity. 6, 1 through 3. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. So here he gives a twofold exhortation, and as usual, he includes himself. Let us. Let us move beyond the basics about Christ and let us be taken forward to maturity. And Eugene Peterson Cullifill renders this double exhortation as let's leave the preschool finger painting exercises on Christ and get on with the grand work of art. Parents are proud to put their preschoolers finger painting on the fridge, but we expect to see great works of art in a museum, though in some museums one does wonder. Um, but here we're pleased uh, to feature uh, the work of both children and adults in our art in the auditorium. Um, Roz Ung's beautiful calligraphy has just been taken down, and we await the next exhibit that will go up shortly. Now, there's nothing wrong about the elementary teaching about Christ. It is good and beautiful and true, but it comes time to move on from preschool to kindergarten and far beyond. And the use of the passive here in let us be taken forward suggests that it is God who moves us on towards maturity as we hear his voice and follow in obedient faithfulness. So we move on from the foundation that has already been laid. We don't need to lay it again. A foundation is essential for any building or other project. It needs to be strong. It needs to be well set so that it can properly support what is built on top of it. But there comes a time to move upwards 
from the foundation to the structure itself. And the preacher here lists six items that form this foundation, which we can equate with the elementary teachings about Christ. And they're given as three pairs, referring to three stages of the Christian life. The first is, pair is repentance from dead works and faith in God. Repentance and faith. This twofold call lies at the heart of the gospel. We hear it again and again in Scripture. We hear the good news of what God has done in Christ, and in response we turn from and we turn to. In repentance, we turn from our existing ways, our works and deeds that lead to death. And in faith, we turn towards God, hearing and accepting his good news and placing our faith in Jesus, giving him our allegiance and loyalty. Repentance and faith, this is the start. The second pair is baptisms and laying on of hands. Now there's some confusion and debate about the first item here. For example, why is it baptisms plural? Uh, many translations, including the NIV, interpret this to mean cleansing rites for ritual purification. These were of major concern to Jews at the time. Alternatively, it can be understood as Christian baptism. And then we read many times of Jesus or the apostles laying hands on people. And the apostles did so to invoke the Holy Spirit or to initiate or confirm someone for particular service. So it seems best to me to understand these two terms as initiation rites. These are rites of passage which mark the transition from outside to inside the household of faith, baptism and invoking the Holy Spirit. And indeed in the Orthodox Church still today, baptism is immediately followed by chrismation, which is anointing with oil to seal the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that is viewed as a direct continuation of this practice of laying on of hands. So that second pair marks our initiation, our informal incorporation into the family of God, the household that follows Jesus. And then the third pair is resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We believe that Jesus, whom God raised from the dead in the middle of time, is the firstborn of all of his followers who will be raised from the dead at the end of this age. And also at the end of this age, God will sit in final judgment. And these two events, together with the return of Christ, usher in the new age, the final age in which all evil has been dealt with and removed, when God and his people dwell together. And we affirm these two items in the creed, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead, and I believe in the resurrection of the dead. So these six items are vital truths. They're fundamental they're foundational truths, but we move on from them in order to learn more. And as we learn more, we are taken forward towards maturity. And this is a lifelong process. Now, it might seem that the preacher has been harsh on his audience, that he has little confidence in them. He has shamed them by calling them infants, babies who have reverted to drinking milk. But it is, I think, better to take these verses so far as a serious wake-up call. He is actually confident that his beloved hears can rise to the challenge. Verse 3, God permitting, we will do so. 
we will move on to more difficult topics, and doing so, be carried forward to maturity. And then chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, he will express more fully his confidence in them. We are convinced of better things in your case. And he will tell them why he feels the need to, need to shake them up. We do not want you to become lazy, where lazy is the same word used in 5.11 of sluggish hearing. So he has accused them of being lazy in hearing and then says he did this so that they not become lazy. So he's hit them hard because he is confident that they will respond to his challenge, that they will indeed show him that they really are moving on towards maturity, that they're not stuck in a failure of hearing and being lazy. And he stirs them up to faithful perseverance, to not be like that wilderness generation that stopped listening and hardened its heart. And this is the mark of a good teacher. He motivates them to advance. Let us move on. Let us move on together. And though it might seem he's being harsh, he doesn't ridicule them so as to plunge them into discouragement or anger or resentment. He's motivating them to keep moving, to keep advancing. Now our scripture reading from Ephesians chapter 4 includes the same metaphors of infant and mature. And this passage has been of great significance in the self-understanding of the PBC churches, uh, both in Palo Alto and here in Cupertino. So among the gifts that God has, that Christ has given the church, his body, are pastors and teachers. And their role is to equip his people for works of service. And the tra word translated equip here is to get something or someone ready for service in its intended purpose. So, for example, it's used of the disciples mending their nets by the Sea of Galilee so they can go out fishing again that night. We all have different gifts given by the Spirit. We all have a part to play in ministry. And when we're each playing our part, the body will be built up. Indeed, it is, as it is rooted in Christ, the body builds itself up in love. And as we grow in faith and knowledge of Jesus, we become mature. We're no longer infants tossed to and fro. So the preacher wants his audience to go back to school. He feared that they had regressed in their transition from infancy to maturity. And this schooling was not simply to give them head knowledge. It was to shape their character. Now, one of our uh, PBCC family values is devotion to the Word, uh, devotion to the Scriptures, which is God's Word. What God spoke in the past to the prophets was written down in Scripture, Israel's Scriptures, which is our Old Testament. What God spoke in, the, in His Son has been written down in our New Testament. And together, we fo it forms God's Word, God's word that still speaks, the living word of the living God. And we pay attention to this word. We seek to hear this word. And we have many opportunities here at PBCC to learn and to pay attention to this word, to be devoted to the word. Women's and men's Bible studies will soon start up again. And we have a long history of people being raised up in these groups, starting as students and then progressing to be teachers and leaders. And the purpose of these groups is not just to learn more about the Bible, not just to build community. They do serve these purposes well, 
but they also should be about us growing into maturity. They should develop our character. And it's been my privilege for over 30 years here at PBCC to be involved in a teaching ministry, teaching the scriptures. And I've seen over and over again the transforming effect of sitting as a group around the scriptures in a slow, unhurried manner, not looking for quick nuggets or slogans, but slow and steady transformation. This is the shaping of character. And it's become popular uh, recent years to talk of spiritual formation. This is what the scriptures do as we pay attention to them. We are formed into Christ-likeness and our faculties become trained through constant use to live life wisely and well as we become like Jesus. Now, the capacity for spiritual formation has no necessarily correlation to education level. Don't have gone all the way through to grad school to be able to be formed by the scriptures, to be able to be shaped by them as you pay attention to them. So my father, for example, ran a Bible school for lepers uh, in Thailand and then um, a training program for farmers and fishermen who, if they were lucky, had had four years in the simple village primary school. And uh, many of them initially were functionally illiterate, but when they came to know Jesus, they had powerful motivation to learn to read, and they became devoted to reading their one book, the Bible, and their lives were transformed as they paid attention to the scriptures, and they found themselves being trained and their lives being formed spiritually into Christ-likeness as they moved from infancy into maturity. Now in Hebrews, above all, the preacher wants his hearers to persevere in the faith. He wants them to remain faithful to Jesus whom they follow. He urges them to look to Jesus and he urges them to encourage one another because they don't make this journey alone. They're facing trials and temptations. They are suffering. So did Jesus. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And with trained faculties, the readers of this sermon can remain faithful. They can choose the good, the beautiful, and the true. They can persevere faithfully in following Jesus. Well, I invite the band to come up. So I want to close with another collect from the prayer book. Uh, this one originally for the second Sunday of Advent. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal li everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you'd like prayer after this, there'll be uh, people at the front left who'd be glad to pray with you. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.